Well, this is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Acts Podcast. And today we're going to go over Holy Week and the different liturgical ceremonies that we observe during this really most important week of the year. And before we get to that, let's get to this, our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So yes, we are here. And uh, in Holy Week, we are almost com done, completed with our Lenten observance. And we are in really what is the most important and really the holiest week of the year. And if you are able, I definitely encourage you to participate in your local parish, at least in some of the Triduum activities. Now, I understand that many dioceses still have uh, limits on how many people can attend uh, religious services, and uh, I understand that you know that's the way it is right at this moment. Uh, but to at least be able to participate live and in person again for at least one of these services really would be, uh, I, I think, very spiritually beneficial. And if not, uh, follow on television. Usually, the uh, liturgies from Rome are, are broadcast, and I'm sure there are going to be many uh, local churches broadcasting or streaming their uh, their liturgies during this week. So, you know, Holy Week, what, what's it all about? Well, basically, Holy Week for us begins on Palm Sunday. I talked a little bit about Palm Sunday last time. And like the uh, many of the other liturgies we're going to talk about today, what it is is sort of an amalgam of things that were done in Jerusalem in the early centuries and things that were done in Rome. Uh, because what you find is that, that there, there were different ways that these, uh, that these particular uh, days on the, on the calendar were observed, in some cases if they were observed at all. So basically our uh, Palm Sunday observance takes the procession with palms, which originally was done in Jerusalem. Usually it was an evening or mid-afternoon procession that began on the Mount of Olives. There was a, a basilica there that eventually got uh, destroyed and abandoned during the time of the uh, Crusades in the uh, 14th century, that in the 19th century the, the ruins were rediscovered and then a Carmelite monastery was rebuilt on the site. Uh, but at the time, we're talking about in the in the fourth century, there would have been a, a basilica uh, on that spot on the Mount of Olives. And so with the bishop, they would have processed then into the city to a place called the Martyrium, which was a church where the relics of martyrs were kept. And there were accompanying hymns. And again, it was to remember when the Lord entered Jerusalem, that triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. 
Now, in Rome at that time, uh, they did not observe that Sunday as Palm Sunday. It was observed as Passion Sunday. And uh, the Pope uh, at, the, at the pontifical liturgies, uh, he would celebrate the Passion, and the Passion according to Matthew would be read. Now again, over the centuries, there's this sort of mixing and development, and eventually this practice of the processions does come into Rome, and there, there does tend to be a, a popular uh, love of these kinds of, of processions and a popular devotion surrounding this. Uh, and eventually we see the Rome actually adopt this practice as well. Now, again, as I said last time, in the uh, pre-1962 uh, missal, in the, the basically the Mass as it was, the liturgy as it was celebrated uh, after the Council of Trent, you have this separation. Uh, Passion Sunday is the fifth Sunday of, of Lent, and the sixth Sunday of Lent is Palm Sunday. Uh, and now we see these two celebrations united together uh, on the same Sunday. So again, I think I went over the, the liturgy the last time, so I'm not going to go into great detail uh, about that. Most of what we know about uh, the celebration of the Triduum in Jerusalem comes to us from a Spanish nun named Egeria, who traveled to made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the late fourth uh, century and kept a rather detailed uh, journal of of her travels and of her experiences. So much of what we know uh, comes through her. Uh, what you find is that we don't really have a lot of liturgical books. Uh, the the best that you know you know I've been able to kind of pick up and and kind of. Uh, discern is that liturgical books were utilitarian. First off, many times priests uh, extemporaneously they, they they spoke extemporaneously during the mass. They followed a pattern. They followed a general outline, but for many centuries, a priest would pray, as Justin Martyr put it, according to their abilities. And uh, it's, again, only over time that we begin to have the prayers and the Eucharistic prayers really written down. Now, again, this doesn't happen yesterday. This, the, the writing down of these things happened uh, you know, fairly quickly, certainly by the, by the 500s or the 600s. Uh, but again, it is a process. It is a process of development. If we follow the uh, Roman Missal, the Masses for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday uh, are, are ordinary Masses. They follow uh, the same as any other weekdays of Lent. Now, back in the old calendar, again, uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Passion according to the Gospel of Matthew, would have been read on Sunday, and then... Tuesday 
excuse me, Monday would have been, I believe, uh, Mark and uh, Tuesday would have been Luke and then uh, John's would have been Friday, I believe. Um, again, they would just, they would read the, uh, there, there was no weekday uh, lectionary uh, before the council. So generally speaking, if you went to a weekday mass, uh, the readings would be the readings from the previous Sunday. Okay, And so in this case, they just follow through the readings of the Passion, though not all from Matthew, but from the other evangelists as well. But we, during, uh, in the new uh, liturgy, in the Novus Ordo liturgy, we hear from John's Gospel, again, we hear the kind of the controversies of Jesus with, uh, uh, you know, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but also we hear from the Last Supper itself. And uh, Jesus predicting his death and also talking about uh, that Judas was the one who was going to betray him. Sometimes Wednesday, I believe this is probably in English, tradition, uh, Wednesday is sometimes referred to as Spy Wednesday because it's the day that uh, kind of the plot to arrest and to uh, crucify Jesus was really beginning to take shape. And when possibly Judas had agreed to hand Jesus over, a day of intrigue, a day of shadows, a day of darkness. Now, so there is Mass on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. On Thursday morning, there will not be Masses in the parishes. There are two Masses which are said, at least according to the, uh, the rubrics, according to the you know, Roman Missal and by the, the liturgical law of the church on Thursday. One is held in the morning, but at the cathedral, and the other is at your local parish. The one at the cathedral is called the Chrism Mass, and Chrism refers to the perfumed oil that is used in the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, and also the uh, Sacrament of Ordination, the priest's hands are anointed with the chrism when uh, he is ordained a priest. And it is a Mass where the bishop and as many priests from the diocese who can get together do in order to bless the holy oils that are used uh, throughout the year. So the oils that are used for the anointing of the sick and also the oil of the, uh, the oil of catechumens that's also used during baptism. Uh, in practical, in the practical sense, that mass is usually not done on Thursday. That mass is usually done on Tuesday, uh, so that more priests can be there. Uh, you know, I, just as you know, someone who's been in parishes and I've been a pastor of, of parishes, uh, this is the busiest week of the year. 
uh, people always around Christmas time ask me if I'm going crazy, but I'm really not. I always find Christmas, yes, it's busier than normal, but it, I don't find it to be uh, extraordinarily busy. This week for the men in the parishes, for the, the volunteers in the parishes, the men and women who help out, this is a very, very busy week. A lot going on, a lot of moving parts. And so to assure that as many priests as possible can be at the Chrism Mass in order to show their unity with the bishop, who is the father of the diocese, uh, this Mass is usually transferred to Tuesday. Uh, though, again, traditionally, it's usually held on the Thursday morning. In the evening is the Mass of the Lord's Supper, which is the Mass in a very special way where we remember the anniversary of the institution of the priesthood and the institution of the Eucharist. Now, the big difference is that along with the Mass, which is, you know, goes on as normal, it is customary for 12 members of the community, uh, lay members of the community, to be invited by the pastor to have their feet washed. The gospel that's read that night is not the reading from the Synoptic Gospels of the Last Supper where Jesus institutes the Eucharist, but instead it's from John's Gospel, uh, the 13th chapter of John's Gospel, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and tells Peter, who is very reluctant to have this happen, that it has to happen, and you need to follow this example. And, it's, uh, the, and the pastor himself is really supposed to get down on his hands and knees and wash those feet and kiss those feet of the people that help and serve. And, you know, in Salesian parishes, it's very common, uh, you know, as well as having people you would think of, you know, lectors and catechists and, you know, people who, adults, uh, to also have young people come up and participate in that as well. And there's some years where that's all we would have were members of the various youth groups come up and participate and have their their feet washed. Uh, the uh, rubrics have been changed by Pope Francis formally so that it's both men and women who uh, can have their feet washed for a while. For many years, it was only men. Now, this was not always a part of the Thursday liturgy. This is actually something that came out of the monasteries. It was something that was often done in monasteries during evening prayer. Remember last time I talked about the, the liturgy of the hours. So what would happen before 1955, the Mass of the Lord's Supper was actually celebrated in the morning. Uh, many of the, the, before 1955, all of the Triduum was celebrated on the respective mornings. And, uh, and usually poorly attended, to be quite honest with you, from what I have heard anecdotally. Uh, and, that, you know, and as you see, as we'll go on, many of these liturgies, especially specifically the Easter Vigil liturgy, is really designed, even in the old rite, really uh, was meant to be really 
celebrated at night. Uh, so it was sort of out of place doing it in the morning, and that's something that Pius XII corrected, was to put the, put put this back in the evening. So when in the days when the you know the Mass of the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the morning, this uh, ceremony of the washing of the feet was again was often done in monasteries, but in relation to evening prayer on the evening of Holy Thursday. The church has taken this this old and venerable tradition and has now incorporated it into the church's liturgy. And again, it's it's a sign for us that we are called to serve, that we are, yes, called to worship, and we have been given this this beautiful worship in which we commune with our Lord and Savior through the partaking of his body and blood under the under the form of bread and wine. But then once we are nourished with that bread and wine, that that wine that is his blood and that bread that is his body, we are then to go out and serve and to really live a life of service for others. And as Jesus constantly tells his apostles, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves everyone else. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve and to lead all to eternal life. And so he sends us, the members of his church, out to do the same. And some of us may do that through the act of apostolate and through volunteering. Some of us may do it through the apostleship of prayer. Maybe because of age and infirmity, we can't get out there and do the do the things that we want to do, but we can still pray. Okay. So that's the example that we're given there on Holy Thursday. Now, the, the other thing I want, I want you to notice about the Holy Thursday liturgy is that the priest is probably not going to give a final blessing. Okay. He'll do a final prayer, and he'll, he might do a prayer over the people, as it's sort of indicated there. But he's probably not going to do a final blessing. And that is because, in a way, the Triduum, the, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, is the first liturgy in the Easter Triduum. The, these three ceremonies, in a way, form one. They form one liturgy. They form one celebration. Now, if it's a situation where, uh, let's say it is a monastery or it's a religious house, and they're only going to be celebrating the, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, then the priest might end with a blessing, or could, could end the, the liturgy with a blessing. But the idea is that after the closing prayer, all the leftover hosts, all the hosts that are in the tabernacle from before Mass, and hopefully there shouldn't be many, and all the hosts that were consecrated at that Mass, which are left over, are kind of gathered together and put into a, a container, and they are walked in procession through the church to what's called an altar of repose. This altar of repose 
uh, might be a side altar within the church. It might be a place completely different. It uh, could be a place in the uh, set up a little chapel set up in the basement of the church or in some other location on the church property, where the Blessed Sacrament is put, and the faithful are able then to adore the Blessed Sacrament, usually until midnight. Each church is going to be a little different. Some maybe will close, you know, at 9 or 10 or, you know, different different parishes are going to have different hours. Uh, when I was in Chicago, we used to keep the church open until midnight. And we usually had a good uh, number of people who would stay and even sometimes visitors from other parishes who would come in. After the Mass is ended, the altar is totally stripped. All the altar cloths are taken off. Uh, there should be no flowers in the, in the, in the church. It, everything should be, should be bare. And the tabernacle lamp is put out as to, to symbolize that our Lord has been taken away from us. And of course, the Lord is not taken away from us. The Lord is still with us. These, again, these are, uh, the, you know, these are symbols, uh, but hopefully powerful ones that remind us of the, the mysteries that we celebrate. From, from that point on, the Blessed Sacrament, usually what happens is after then after midnight, the Blessed Sacrament is taken and kept in the uh, sacristy, or maybe if there's another chapel, let's say there's a convent chapel or uh, a chapel in the, uh, in the rectory, the Blessed Sacrament is kept there. But the idea is that the church is bare and the Blessed Sacrament is not present. Now, Lent is officially over. With the Mass of the Lord's Supper, Lent is officially over, but that does not mean that our Lenten fast has necessarily ended. And so we know that Good Friday is a day of fasting and abstinence. It's a day that we're asked to, again, as always, not to eat meat, but also a day when we're asked to fast, to only take one meal or to take that one meal with two smaller meals, if necessary. Two meals that together do not equal the one. And, you know, really that should begin right when the Mass ends. Uh, but again, I leave that up to your, uh, you know, to your conscience and to your uh, judgment. Uh, but to, I, I think, yes, technically speaking, if you wanted to go back and, and eat and drink and be merry, you could do that. Um, but if it's possible, and depending on what time the Mass is, you might need to eat something. Uh, but if at all possible, I, I think it's good to really begin that period of fasting right off and to really get yourself into that kind of mood and into that, into that spirit right away. And then we have Good Friday. And Good Friday, again, we have the official liturgy, which is a 
which is not a Mass. Okay, the Mass is not celebrated on Good Friday, and really, technically speaking, the sacraments are not supposed to be celebrated on Good Friday. Uh, now, if someone comes to me wanting to have their confession heard, I'm going to hear their confession. <laughs> okay, don't don't tell the bishop. In fact, tell the bishop. He'll, he would probably uh, agree with me. Um, you know, if there was an emergency and a person was dying and they wanted baptism, they wanted the the um, anointing of the sick, okay, obviously, you know, you could and should do those things. But under ordinary circumstances, the sacraments are not celebrated on that day. What the Mass of the Lord's Supper, or excuse me, what the celebration of the Lord's Passion is, is exactly that. We have the Liturgy of the Word, where we hear readings from the Old and New Testament. Then we have, much like we did on Palm Sunday, we have a reading of the Passion. This time, always from John's Gospel. Sunday, it rotates. Palm Sunday, it rotates between the three synoptic Gospels. And, but on, on Good Friday, it's always John. And as you know, the church always kind of warns us, you know, I love John's gospel. It's my favorite of, of, the, of the four. Um, but you do have to be very careful how you read it and how it's read. Because John does use this rhetorical uh, device of talking about Jesus and the Jews. And the Jews do this and the Jews do that. And the church does remind us that that the evangelist is not speaking of all the Jews that lived during Jesus' time. He's not talking about all the Jews that lived through history. He's, he's talking about very specific people who were in positions of leadership and who opposed Jesus. We, I, again, I know I said it the last episode, but I'll say it again. We have Jesus... <laughs> was a Jew. He, he was very conscious and very uh, conscientious about going to the temple in order to celebrate the important feast days. And even the apostles in the immediate years after uh, the resurrection still went to the temple to pray. And Paul preached in synagogues. In fact, that's really you know, Roman roads and synagogue. Want to know how Christianity spread, boys and girls? Roman roads and synagogues. Roman roads that united the whole Mediterranean basin and synagogues that, again, were in the four corners of the, of the Roman Empire. Okay, there were Jewish communities all over the, the Roman Empire, from Palestine all the way to Spain. And in fact, Paul had hoped to be able to go to Spain at one point, but, well, we know what happened. He got to Rome and he never ended up leaving. And so Paul and others, at least initially, until there was this formal separation between uh, those who accepted Jesus as the Messiah and those who didn't, uh, they preached in synagogues and would have participated in synagogue ceremonies. They probably would have celebrated the Eucharist on the Sunday, early in the morning. But they also probably, many of them, if they were 
uh, Jewish Christians, you know, quite often would have participated in the in the uh, synagogue as well. So we have to be very careful how that's read and how that's understood. Okay, and really to avoid uh, any any taint of anti-Semitism in that regard. So again, we're gonna we we're, we're gonna hear the passion read in parts, much like a, a dramatic reading. The priest again is uh, encouraged to give a brief homily, not to not to preach too long. Uh, you know, the uh, priests are supposed to preach. Really, a priest should say something at every mass, certainly every public mass. Sometimes in religious houses, we don't necessarily give, you know, homilies every day to one another. But you know, really, it in mass out in in a parish, it it it's a good thing to to give some little reflection on the readings. But certainly on the major feast days, it's mandatory. You, you have to, and but on a day like uh, Good Friday, where the liturgy is long and the reading itself is rather long, uh, better to let the reading speak for itself. Say something, but maybe don't say too, too much. After the uh, reading of the gospel, we have the universal prayer, what we sometimes call the prayer of the faithful. Now, again, under the old liturgy, this would have been uh, the only time the prayers of the faithful came into play. Uh, there were no prayers of the faithful on Sunday Masses before 1969. Uh, except for, again, the, the Good Friday liturgy. So here we have 10 very specific prayers, prayer intentions, uh, that we, where we pray for the church, we pray for those that are being baptized, we pray for uh, those who uh, believe in God, we pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters, we pray for even those who who are atheists, those who don't believe in God, that they may come to a knowledge of the love of God in their lives. And we, we pray for our political leaders. Uh, so, uh, someone made the observation that's interesting that you know down at the end of the list of the pol the politicians come after the atheists. So I'll let you um, kind of make that uh, judgment as as you will. After the prayers of the faithful, we have the veneration of the cross, where usually the priest or the deacon will uh, come down the aisle. Usually there'll be two altar servers with candles, and the priest, there'll be a cloth over the priest, and he'll kind of one arm at a time uh, uncover the crucifix in three stages. He'll do an invocation that the people respond to, then get to the middle, uncover a little bit of the cross, again make an invocation that the people will respond to, and then get to the altar area and then uncover the cross completely, and again uh, make that invocation. And then people are given the opportunity to venerate the cross, usually by kissing it. Uh, some places, if there are many, many people, maybe they'll just have a few people venerate the cross then and then leave the crosses there afterward for people to venerate later. Uh, there really is only supposed to be one uh, cross. 
that is venerated, but again, there's allowances made if there's you know a larger crowd that you might be able to have more than one uh, uh, cross. Then, after the veneration of the cross, there is the the reception of Holy Communion. And again, this is not the Mass. The priest is not praying the Eucharistic prayer. Basically, what happens after the veneration of the cross and kind of the placing of the cross in a, in a prominent place, the priest with the altar servers go out and get the reserved sacrament from the rectory, or excuse me, from the sacristy. A minister then puts the altar cloth, a simple altar cloth on top of the altar. And the Our Father is prayed, and a few of the prayers that we recognize from the communion rite are said. And the, the priest then takes a host, presents it to the people, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And then the people respond with the with the response, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and I shall be healed. And then the people receive communion. And again, like the night before, there is no final blessing. The ceremony ends. There is a um, kind of a prayer, the, the, well, the, the prayer after communion, and then a prayer over the people. And then the, the priest leaves in silence. Now, something I, I left out, the priest enters in silence as well. The priest and the different ministers enter in silence as well, and then usually prostrate themselves at the beginning for a brief time as the people are kneeling. And again, it's an act of humility. It's an act of uh, you know, recognizing the gravity of the day and the uh, the, the tremendous uh, act that our Lord did for us. Uh, and then the priest gets up and goes and does an opening prayer. But that's, so the liturgy begins in silence and it ends in silence. Uh, there is music that, that usually accompanies the uh, veneration of the cross. There's you know, music that, obviously there there is music during communion time usually. But it's a pretty... And there are some chants, traditional chants that can be done, but it's it's a pretty sparse liturgy. It's a pretty sparse liturgy. So it begins in silence, it ends in silence. Then the Easter vigil. And you know, we're 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 getting kind of long here. So maybe what I will do is we will do a part two. Because the Easter vigil really by itself will take a lot of time to talk about. So we'll maybe end there for right now. So Thursday, Mass of the Lord's Supper, the anniversary of the priesthood, the anniversary of uh, the commissioning or the the making of, you know, the apostles becoming bishops, really. Not just priests, but, but bishops. And that call to service that reminder that if we're going to accept the Lord's call, whether it's to the priesthood or the, you know, the episcopacy, or whatever ministry within the church, it means service. It doesn't mean aggrandizing ourselves. It means serving others. And that's symbolized by the feet washing. And then Good Friday, the... Uh, 
the, the celebration of the Lord's Passion, where we again hear the Lord's Passion from John, we make the universal prayers for the church and the world, we venerate the cross, and then uh, we receive communion from the communion that's left over from the Holy Thursday Mass. So again, we'll, we'll leave that there, and we'll treat the Easter Vigil really as its own thing, and I'll get that up again. I'll try to get that posted, uh, you know, certainly by, by Thursday or Friday. Okay, so we'll leave that there for right now. I know that I said I was not going to really talk about anything pop culture this week, uh, but I'm going to kind of go back on that. Um, just because I do think that there is a, a connection, tenuous maybe, uh, but still a connection with uh, the things we're celebrating this week. Now, some of you uh, may have heard of a hip-hop artist, a rapper by the name of Lil Nas X. Now, I don't know much about him. I know that he had a hit. I don't know if it was last year or the year before with the uh, song Old Town Road. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, Old Town Road was a rather simple number. It wasn't anything too complicated. Uh, it helped put Miley Cyrus's father back on the map, I guess, because um, he did the co... It was a duet or a, you know, between the, with, with the two of them. I thought the song was okay. I thought the video was funny. I will admit, I thought the video was funny. Uh, I laughed. Eh, whatever that says about my uh, sense of humor. But I guess he has reemerged, and of course, on Holy Week, because all these things always happen on Holy Week. Uh, but uh, our friend Lil Nas X uh, is kind of making a splash because he had a provocative uh, video, I guess, um, with a great deal of satanic imagery. I have not seen the video, and I really don't really care or plan to. But the, the thing that got my attention that in conjunction with all this, he's uh, trying to sell uh, sneakers. He calls them Satan shoes. Uh, and basically, and he's in a little trouble about it, not just because, well, well, they're Satan shoes. Of course you should get in trouble for something like that. But uh, also because basically he took Nikes and he modified them, and now he's trying to resell them. And Nike's not really happy about that. And his mod, his mods were to, you know, along with putting some satanic uh, imagery on these shoes, was also to fill um, the heel. That the heel has one of those, you know, clear plastic uh, kind of tubes in them, and they're filled with with red liquid that supposedly have a drop of blood in them. Uh, spooky. And he's got, you know, 666 uh, sewed on them and the whole bit. And I think they, they only have 666 pairs that they made. And supposedly these things are going for like a grand at least, if not uh, more, $1,000 for a pair of sneakers. Uh, some people think that uh, they're probably going to get resold for, you know, even upwards of three or $4,000. Um, you know, I, I bring this up really for, for two reasons. Um, beginning with uh, 
I believe it was Rosemary's baby, and I'll 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 stand to be corrected on this. I don't know if if that movie was released in the theaters on you know during Holy Week or whether it was broadcast on television during Holy Week. Uh, though we know Rosemary's Baby was you know a a, a movie. The the book was actually meant to be more satirical, and the movie was a bit more serious. Uh, but it was meant to be an inversion of the Christ story. So instead of uh, you know the birth of the Savior, it was supposed to chronicle the the birth of the the Antichrist. And then I remember when I when I was in high school, the Thorn Birds, which was again a mini, in this case a miniseries based on a novel about a, a priest who has an affair with a woman that stretches over many decades. Uh, and I know people, again, I never read the book. Those who read the book felt that it was a bit more, uh, didn't make the relationship look as glamorous as the as, as the television show did. But again, this was, this was broadcast, again, during Holy Week. Uh, it seems that many years, and I really haven't been paying much attention, so I don't know what's been going on lately, but it's very common on, you know, on different cable channels and television channels that you have uh, shows put on which question somehow the historicity of Jesus or the historicity of the of the of the resurrection, and, you know. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not one that says that you know Hollywood is all you know a bunch of devil worshipping uh, so and sos that are out to undermine the faith and morals of uh, children and small animals. But you know what? They don't do much sometimes to dissuade me from thinking that. And this is just one more case. And yeah, it's publicity. You know, is, is Lil Nas really a devil worshiper? I have absolutely no idea. Could be. Could be. But, you know, in the past, you had folks like, you know, Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne is no more a devil worshiper than, you know, than I am. But you play a cynical game. He played a cynical game. And again, I, I believe that, that maybe some of the bad luck he has uh, had in his life over the years, you know, maybe had something to do with the fact that he surrounded himself with that kind of, of dark aura. You know, one of my, you know, I'm a fan of classic rock, and one of my favorite bands is the Rolling Stones. And uh, again, you look at the, the late 60s, it's unquestionable that they got themselves involved uh, in some, you know, not very good activities, uh, occult activities, and it, uh, you know, some pretty dark stuff. And uh, then you had the Altamont, uh, you know, uh, concert where someone was was stabbed to death, and again, general uh, bad things happening around the band at that time, and, and one of an author who wrote a biography of them uh, talked about the fact that from that point they sort of kind of abandoned all that because the and then kind of went into a direction of more camp and and comedy in a way uh, rather than keep to that that image because maybe it had had cut a little too close to the bone. Uh, you need to be very careful about what it is you're playing with, you know. Satan is real. I'm not going to 
I'm not going to lie to you. This stuff is real. Now, you know, by itself, you know, playing with a Ouija board, for instance, isn't necessarily going to make bad things happen. But one needs to be very careful. I would advise anyone, for instance, not to play with a Ouija board. Because even though, you know, the odds are nothing's going to happen, eh, why, why take the chance? And we should be very, very careful about the things that we play with. And the images that we allow into our minds and the music we allow into our into our ears because they really do go into our mind and in a way into our soul and we don't want to be influenced by those things and yeah i'll kind of leave it at that i don't want to get too far down that road but to say that you know our lord came to give us life and to give us life in abundance he came to break the power of Satan in the world and to lead us into the kingdom of light. Let's not even play with the darkness. Let's not even joke with the darkness. Let's stay with the light and follow the Lord into the light today and every day. Okay? So I'll... Uh, I'll leave it there at that. Yeah, the other thing that came to my mind, just to, to backtrack, uh, when I was a kid, uh, Kiss, the rock band Kiss, put out a, a um, comic book. And they claimed to have real Kiss blood in the ink. <laughs> you know, little drops of, of blood uh, from the band members that, that went into this huge vat of, of ink. And again, this is imagery that's played with, uh, but it, maybe it's imagery that really shouldn't be played with. And uh, let us stick to the light. Let us stick to the Lord. This is light week. This is the this is the the week when the excuse me. This is not light week, but this is the next week, Easter week. We'll talk about Easter week when Easter week comes. But this is certainly the week that leads us to the light. This is the week that leads us to the celebration of the resurrection. And uh, let us not fool with anything that might bring darkness. Okay, so that really is it this time. And uh, hopefully, uh, I will, not hopefully, but I will get uh, something up on the Easter Vigil in particular before the end of the week. God bless all of you. And uh, until then, have a good and peaceful Holy Week. Get the confession if you can. And know that the Lord loves you today and always. Bye-bye.